I had this idea in my head. I am not someone who. I am not someone who can do that. I'm here today with Tova Mervis. Tova is the author of the book, A Separation, a powerful memoir about personal discovery and her separation from her Orthodox Jewish heritage. Those moments when you set out on your own, I think are enormously vulnerable. Any kind of change is hard and painful. It's possible, but I think rare to feel like to, to leave and never look back. In that world, it feels enormous when you're taught that this is wrong or that this is not what we do or this goes against not just God's will but but the way of being of who you've always been breaking not just religious rules or family taboos but even I think our own sense of who we are we, we, we sometimes break our own internal visions of ourselves you're listening to the real business connections network real business connections network powered powered by Balbert marketing LLC Subscribe now and check us out at realbusinessconnections.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, once again to Learn, Speak, Teach on the Real Business Connections Network. I'm here today with Tova Mervis. Tova, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. I'm excited. I just read your book. I actually discovered you on a Little Bit Colty podcast. Um, Sarah and Nippy actually were just on the show um, probably a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, depending on when exactly this comes out, um, and was fascinated by your story. And to kind of introduce the audience, Tova is the author of The Book of Separation, a powerful memoir about personal discovery and her separation from her Orthodox Jewish heritage. Her compelling storytelling, that's really hooked me, Tova, is also showcased in several best-selling novels and notable publications like the New York Times Book Review. Um, and just your honesty, your vulnerability, your storytelling hooked me. I read the book. I loved it. And now we can introduce it all to our audience today. Thank you so much. Thank you for reading it. So the book is separation. What, let's just start with why. Why did you write that memoir? I really think of myself primarily as a fiction writer. I love the freedom of making up a story, sort of thinking about like, huh, that's interesting and, and getting to play with it. Like, what would it look like if you took someone and did something totally made up and, and that feeling that you're really just inventing. And I'd written three novels and really, you know, never imagined I would write nonfiction about my own life. It just seemed, you know, putting a novel into the world is vulnerable enough because you're always there in some form hidden hidden in the pages but memoir to me I love reading it but I just never imagined that I would want to put my own life out there in the world in that way and right before my um I guess it was right before my third novel Visible City was about to come out and I was in the process of getting divorced and not just leaving a marriage but also leaving the religious community and the religious upbringing that had shaped who I was and Part of the Orthodox Jewish tradition is that there is an actual divorce ceremony. It's sort of a legalistic undoing of the marriage document in which you are officially divorced. And I think for me as a writer, the way that I know what I feel about something is to write it down. And so I just wrote about what that experience felt like for me. I didn't imagine it was something I would share with anyone, but I kept writing it and kept working on it. And and then right before Visible City came out, my editor asked me if I had any essays that we could send out. Part of promoting a novel is, you know, the writer will try to have as many pieces placed wherever you can. There's sort of this flurry of activity. And I was like, well, 
oh, I have this thing. I don't know. And I decided it was really just like on a whim that this moment of like, oh, I'll send it to the New York Times, mostly thinking what are the odds they would actually take it? It just seems so unlikely that they would actually publish it because you know, the New York Times is like, you know, the big, you know, the, the holy grail of like a publishing piece. And yes. I got an email like 20 minutes later saying, you know, we love it and want to publish it. And I was thrilled. I was horrified. I wanted to say like, never mind. I can't really do this because it is, it's very vulnerable to put, you know, your most private painful moment into the New York Times. And, you know, I just decided that I was going to do it, that I was not going to pull it back. Um, I happened to be in Costa Rica on this amazing hiking trip when it came out, which if I've learned anything, it's that when you put your most painful private moment in the times, the, you know, rainforest is a great place to be <laughs> away, like away from everything, the response, the comments, the emails, you know, you get this response in, in all directions. And I found though that as soon as I did come back to self-service, that I had hundreds of emails waiting for me. And wow. really the overwhelming majority were from people who wanting to share their story with me of some kind of leave taking, whether they were leaving a different religious community. I had many, many emails from people who had left Mormonism or Catholicism, people who were getting divorced, people who in one way or another were separating from who they imagined they were supposed to be and, and forging a different path. And it really renewed my desire to be a writer, that feeling that when you do put something vulnerable out in the world, as, as scary as it, as it really is, I think that's what invites other people to share their stories and to want to have that sense of connection. And, and I think it's, what, you know, it reminds me of, you know, I wanted to become a writer because you, you create some, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you create some sense of this is how it feels like to be a person. This is what it feels like for me to be a person in the world. And it invites that sense of connection for other people. And so I, after that experience, I decided to write, to write this book as a memoir. Yeah. And you invited that sense of connection. You're, you're off in Costa Rica, you're getting flooded with the emails, people are <laughs> connecting with it. Right. It's scary. Um, but one thing that's, and I want to get deeper into the story, but I want to touch on one thing that fascinates me is this started behind the scenes. You were journaling just for you, right? You didn't plan on putting this out to the world. Right. Definitely not. I mean, I've written a few essays, like little bits here and there, nonfiction stuff, but really I write fiction. And I mean, certainly like fiction is very vulnerable because the fiction is this mask. There's this, you know, I could go through every one of my books and underline, this is me, this is me, <laughs> this is you, this is my grandmother, this is us. But, but there's always that, that feeling of, you know, it's not me. When I wrote my first book, one of my writing teachers, the writer, Binny Kirshenbaum gave me advice. She's like, you know, I have three pieces of advice for you, you know, deny, deny, deny. And just this idea that fiction, you know, yes, yes, it's you, but, but there's some feeling of, of you're hidden in the page. You're, yes. it's you and it's not you at the same time, but with nonfiction, you know, there's no, there's no hiding. There's, you know, it's, it's you, you know, it's not all of you. It's not your diary, but it's you. And so I think that idea that putting it out in the world was just not something I was interested in doing. I just couldn't really imagine that I could put my own story out there for like public consumption in, in such a unguarded way. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, so the fiction, there's almost armor around you. And then when you release the armor, you're, you're vulnerable to all of the things, but well, you were writing for you, 
the the reason I'm bringing this up, like doubling down on it, is I don't have to be a professional writer to do an exercise of just you. You tell us what what did that look like when you were just writing for yourself, not thinking that you were going to unleash it and publish it. Right. People often ask me, like, how do you start or what does it look like? I feel like the the first draft, like that initial thing, it's like crazy, messy words on a page. It's just like thoughts. There's no structure. There's no form. It's just like trying to describe, to, to catch in words the feeling. Like, what did it feel like to be part of a religious ceremony of divorce of a world I was leaving? You know, the, the ceremony is very prescriptive where the man officially divorces the woman. And it was following the prescripts of, um, a religious community that I knew I wasn't going to be part of. And yet it was almost like I had to pass through it in order to leave it. And I felt respectful, but I also felt resistant and I felt afraid and I felt um, uncomfortable. And I felt, you know, of course, so many conflict, like divorce brings up so many conflicting feelings of guilt and regret and fear and shame and failure and all these sorts of things that go into those moments. And I felt like I mean, in so many ways, I feel like that all I wanted to do was capture not like what someone should do or not like anything prescriptive, but just what does it feel like? What does it feel like to stand there? What is it? Or even just to go to sometimes to like, you know, people asking, you know, where do you start with writing? I feel like, what does it look like? You know, what does the room look like? What are you wearing? What are you, what is in your head? Just to capture those tactile moments. And I think as I write, I come to understand more and more what I'm feeling. I start to see like a theme. I start to feel that sense of um, clarification that happens through the process of writing. And I think for me, you know, my mind will be swirling with ideas and feelings and thoughts. But once I'm holding a pen, I feel like, okay, now I can start to have some sense of understanding of what I'm feeling. I think it's why people journal to to create that feeling of of clarity inside your own self yeah gaining that clarity within ourselves and then eventually we might take off that armor and be vulnerable and share it but it's not required that the world sees this 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 is for us as much as anybody else right it's a way you know of just formulating ideas i think the idea of that kind of writing for yourself is also just freedom to say um this is i don't have to worry is this good or not the question is it good it's such a damaging question i feel like when you're creating what i should say is this what everyone wants me to say i i think we should ourselves to death is this good is this bad like what is i'm a creative i'm a musician at heart and it's like what feels right for me Right. Is that sometimes I'm like, oh, this this is ter- my new my new project is terrible. And I feel like I haven't even written it yet. How could it be terrible yet? You know, that that voice that's so negative and so damning, I think, of our own preliminary efforts. And sometimes I just feel like this is just I'm just gonna write whatever I'm in the mood. You know, just and it's I can it can be mean, it can be angry, it can be wordy, it can have every you know, when I write like that on my computer, every single word is misspelled. I mean, it is typo, you know, typo to death because I'm a terrible typist. And so it's just like it's just that feeling of like get just put things on the page to start with and then see where it takes you. Like, you know, I believe in revision and and restructuring and you know, endless revision. But at least in that first stage, that creative free brainstorming stage, like just put something down. See see what you have at first vomited onto the page then you can always revise you can always rewrite rewrite and one thing i'm impressed in your writing is 
your focus on the little moments and the little details that are maybe specific to you, but so many of us can relate to them. I know um, Matthew Dix has been on the show twice. He wrote Story Worthy, New York Times bestselling, one of the best uh, 50 time off grand champion storyteller. Mm -hmm. He's kick butt. Um, And he talks about those little moments and starting with a little moment. And when I was reading your book, I just noticed all these little moments and I wrote a few down. I want to just read one of them, one Mm -hmm. quick quote. But you said, no matter how many miles I go, I still expect to look back in my rear view mirror and see the people I once knew coming after me. Now that's a direct quote, but give a little bit of context of what led you into that moment where you're looking in that rear view mirror and why you felt that way and what was going on at that time. I think so much of leaving a community or I think it's from anywhere. You could leave a family, you could leave a marriage relationship, you could leave a, a job, you know, these places that, feels so foundational to who we are. There's there's moments when you set out on your own, I think are enormously vulnerable. Any kind of change is hard and painful. And it, it's it's possible, but I think rare to feel like to to leave and never look back. I think I think most people as human beings, we are trained to look back. We look back at things, we certainly I ruminate, regret, second guess, you know, fill my mind with I could have, I should have, should I have said that? And and I, I think those moments of leaving are so fraught with those with those kind of sentiments. And so, you know, the moment I think that you're um, quoting from is, you know, this idea of, you know, for me, one of the big themes in the book was driving. You know, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, where driving was kind of like friendly suburban driving. And then I lived in New York City for about 13 years and did not have a car and never just somehow never drove. It just wasn't part of my life. I walked everywhere, took the bus or the subway. And then I moved to Boston, to suburban Boston, and I had to drive. And I had this shock of Boston drivers, the aggressiveness. And so I I joke about that, too. Oh, my God. I was shocked. I was like, you know, you are honking at me? Like, what? You know, totally stunned. And so for the first eight, ten years of living in Boston, I was afraid to drive on the highway. And it was not something I was embarrassed by. It felt embarrassing to be a grown-up who would not get on the highway. I would you know, take the long road or I, you know, I just was really, I was, it was, it was a phobia of getting on the highway. And I think so much of my memoir really is about facing all those kinds of moments, not just deciding to leave a marriage that I did need to leave, but, but deciding to do other things that I was afraid to do. And so I guess the whole idea of being in the car, you know, being on the highway and realizing that, you know, I think for me, it was realizing that you get on the highway in a, what enabled me to do it was not that I was not afraid. I was terrified, but but doing it anyway. Those moments when you do things. And I'm probably the only person who every time I merge, I'm like, I am so great. Look at that lovely merge I did. You know, still feel the sense of like pride and in, in you know in being able to do something that previously felt so scary. But but I, I think even when we make those bold or what feels bold to us moments, I think there's the sense of the rear view mirror, the people behind us. Of course, no one literally was chasing me. It's, you know, it wasn't that kind of leave taking where there would actually be people, you know, but in my mind, I think we carry people with us in our minds. We carry that possibility for um, disapproval or people not agreeing. You know, people don't always agree. And like having to, we disappoint people. We betray people's notions of who we are, who they want us to be. And, I think even in leaving, we, we we often take those with us. Those are the things that 
even as we st- even which is not to say that you don't you don't go but they're there too they're there there's part of the process i think yeah powerful and in you're breaking a narrative i mean it's 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 sometimes hard to understand what it feels like until you're in it but like i if i recall maybe it was the scene or a different one but you're driving on a day that based on your religion was completely against god's will to even drive in the first place right Right. I mean, I grew up observing the Jewish Sabbath in this in this a very strict way where we didn't use electricity or we didn't turn lights on or off or didn't cook or didn't, um, you know, I wouldn't have used my phone. You know, these sort of set of rules that were for me growing up were just the given. It wasn't something I thought about. It was just how the world worked. And so to break something like that, you know, it's funny because. You know, on one hand, it's tiny, right? So you drove, you know, past sundown on on a Friday night or on a holiday. Like it's such a small infraction in one sense. It's not like you're, you know, shooting somebody. It's a, a tiny little thing, but but within that world, it feels enormous when you're taught that this is wrong or that this is not what we do or this goes against not just God's will, but but the way of being of who you've always been, and so certain infractions loom so large. These immense men, they're, they're such small actions and yet they have enormous power. And so driving was on that, at that particular time when I was driving was something I would have always regarded as forbidden. It's not something I would ever have imagined that I would do. And so you're, we're breaking, it was it's breaking not just religious rules or family taboos, but even I think our own sense of who we are, we, we, we can break our own internal visions of ourselves. And that I think is sometimes the hardest one to do. Yeah. Let, let's reflect on that, you know, internal work, that inner transformation, because whether it's leaving a relationship or a religion or maybe a corporation that you've worked for for 30 years and you're going to die young because you're miserable there. Like we all unfortunately find those roads where we decide we have to take a different path. And I can't imagine you just snap your finger and everything's healed and everything's hunky dory. Like what, what did the inner transformation healing process look like for you when, I mean, you had a great opportunity to create a new narrative for yourself but you were leaving something you knew so well. Like, what what did that look like for you? Right. I mean, there's that enormous change. And I think, you know, as you say, that we make those changes at so many different junctures in our life. And I think it's so easy to fall into the idea that it's not possible to change and nothing can change. This is the way it is. And I know one particular way I kept myself in place for so long was I had this idea in my head, I am not someone who, I am not someone who can do that. I'm not someone who makes waves or I'm not someone who makes big changes. And that phrase I feel like is so damning to ourselves in so many ways because it 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 puts forth this idea that there's a you know there's one way I am and I and I'm not able to move from it. And I think for me in so many ways it was lifting that idea that, you know, well, why am I not someone who, you know, I I can be someone who or maybe that wasn't who I was, but I I can be someone different. And I think it was almost releasing myself from the idea that there's one set way it has to be. It was so fixed in my mind that this is how it looks. This is who you are. This is what you do. This is the path you're on. And and there's such like a gravitational pull against breaking free from that and doing something different and and change. And for good reason. I mean, change comes with costs. I mean, certainly leaving a job that you've been part of it comes with enormous risk and cost leaving a marriage comes with enormous pain and complication for so many people and leaving 
a religious community deciding to move from a place you've always lived, all these changes, there's that rupture. And I think those ruptures are so painful. And we do them, though, with the hope. I mean, maybe it's just hope that it will be better in a different way or, or that you there's some other way you still can be. And I think it's setting out towards that. I feel like driving was such an important metaphor to me in the book because I felt like it's just about, you know, like that move forward towards something else, like the idea of a get in your car and go, even if you're, you know, as I was looking in the rearview mirror, you know, this feeling of moving towards some other possibility. And, and you did that. You're moving towards a new possibility. What what other moments stick out to you in your journey out of orthodoxy to where you are today? I mean, you're established, you're an incredible writer. Um, you're doing incredible for yourself. Were there other moments that you still kind of felt like you were looking in the rear view or you felt like you kind of had to pinch yourself? What, what did those look like for you? And you know, people ask me, was there any one big breaking moment when you decided, you know, either this marriage is not working or I, I'm not going to be part of this religious community. I'm not going to observe the religious strictures as I had before. And I always feel like there wasn't one particular moment, but the accumulation of so many small ones, that sort of feeling of, like these small moments of not listening to the voice inside my head that that said, I, I don't believe this. I love so many people who do believe this. And I'm so close to my family who believe in this, but I don't, I don't believe in it in the same way. And I can't, I can't, you know, have voiced something that feels inauthentic to me. And I think those kinds of moments, they're, maybe they're very internal moments of, of deciding and deciding to pay attention to them, to the little moments, that little whispering voice inside your head. I I think for a long time, I thought that voice of doubt would go away if I just ignored it. And one of the things I've learned is that when we ignore those voices, they usually grow louder. They, they rarely go mm. away. Um, I also often look back, you know, I think it's easy to look back at our past mistakes and feel like, how could I have done that? So I got married when I was 22. I was a senior in college and I, it was sort of customary in the world I was part of it. I got engaged after 12 weeks of dating to my first boyfriend. And it just seemed like, you know, what could go wrong? Like that just sort of was the path that people took. And as soon as I look back at that 22 year old and I just feel like, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? You know, this sort of disdain for this 22 year old who would make such a life decision. And, and I think one of the things I have learned is to look back with more compassion towards our earlier selves and the mistakes. Yes, I made a mistake. I was operating within a world that the best I could at that time, but to look back at those moments that do stand out for me with a sense of compassion for our younger selves. That compassion can be difficult. One thing I'm learning and I don't have this figured out, but just understanding that we made the best possible decision based on the data we had, the life circumstance we had, our age, our maturity, we made the best possible decision for then, but right what are we, what decision are we going to make for now? Right. Exactly. And it's kind whatever, of, yeah. There's that there's a now still also that you don't have to remain trapped because of the prior decision. But I try to feel compassion for that 22 year old. <laughs> there there's the, then there's the understanding right. of the now, and then there's the future you that you're going to continue to build and become. So like when you left it, was overwhelming, I can imagine. And I'm just curious, how are things now? Are you still going through struggles? How has life changed in the past? How long has it been? 
It has been almost ten years. Almost ten years. Crazy <laughs> anniversary. Yeah, <laughs> right. What, what does one do for that party? <laughs> That's one song, right? How are you um, feeling? Right. I mean, it feels. It's funny. It feels like this is just who I am. In the beginning, every decision, every time I drove on a Saturday, every time I um, ate something that I would not have eaten prior, I would be hyper aware of it. I would be like, I am eating this and this would, you know, now it's just very much the norm. I mean, I still, you know, I think one of the hard things about leaving um, is that I didn't want to leave in a way that, that severed relationships. I, you know, care so much about my family and people I'm close to and wanted to find a way to still have that sense of connection. And so I think that, you know, one of the ways I do it as I'm very connected to Jewish holidays. I still participate, not necessarily as like a religious imperative but as a family time you know I celebrate Jewish holidays with my family I go visit them they come to me and try to find ways to connect you know even despite differing beliefs and different um observance I guess I would call observances um to still being willing to be flexible and to say okay this is not something I ordinarily would do but I'm going to do this right now for the sake of my family I'm going to participate in something and and I, I feel like I'm able to do that because it's not a secret. I don't know that I could keep a secret and pretend to believe something I don't believe or to practice in a certain way that I don't. But I can go, I can participate without having to pretend. And that to me feels really, that's been a nice place to arrive at um, in terms of that and to feel, um, you know, I feel like so much of it is being comfortable in your own skin. And I have times where I feel more comfortable and times where I feel less comfortable, but when I do feel more comfortable in who I am and the choices I've made, that is when I'm able to be the most open. That's actually when I'm able to be the most open to people different from me and to feel secure in my own knowledge, my own decisions, and not feel threatened by what someone might say or disapproval. And just to sort of try to bring myself back to that place of of I am following my my own sense of what I believe and what feels authentic to me. And it's different than other people. That's okay. It's okay. And I can still love that other person. And I feel like that is, I wish I could say, I always felt that way. I, you know, can't always stay in that, in that spot. But when I, when I can bring myself back to that is when I feel the most rooted and grounded in, in this new, new version of myself. I love this. I joke all the time. They take our fingerprint when we get in trouble because we all have a unique fingerprint. So to assume the position of someone else's fingerprint or right. someone else's specific exact doctrine loses part of who we are as an individual, right? Right. And I thought that so much as a writer or trying to be creative that I felt like I couldn't write from a place of what felt to me like inauthenticity about my own belief, that feeling of, I feel like writing, I always feel like writing is like a willingness to say, I always say to myself, like, say it, like, say it, go there, say it. Like whenever I pull back from a scene, I was like, no, that's when, when you go forward, like, what did he say next? What did she say? What happened? And I feel like my own sense of fear of being honest, I think hindered me as a writer, as opposed to being willing to delve into the messy. I mean, so much of fiction writing and any kind of writing, I think any creativity is really go there. Like one of my favorite quotes, I used to have it on my desk. It seems to have gotten looking. Oh no, it's still here. The job of the artist is always to deepen the mystery, Francis Bacon. And I always just love that idea that it's not, 
to say this is this is what you should think. It's just the deepening of that sense of the unknowable, the complicated, messy, crazy of being human, and that I want to be willing to write into that messy and that mystery as opposed to you know writers who are like this is what you should feel this is this is this is the only truth and just to sort of muck around in that that messy space muck in the mess explore be curious Mm -hmm. i'm i'm curious on my end because i'm a tremendously agreeable person i try not to ruffle too many feathers i'm very inclusive um so possibly i pull back sometimes like, how do you know when to pull back and when to push forward? Because, I mean, there there's certain people that are opposite of me and all they do is push. And I'm not a fan of that, but possibly me and the listener aren't pushing forward and we're pulling back too much. Like, how do you know when to speak and when to shut up in some scenarios? So hard because I, I was trained to be a good girl. I mean, not just a regular good girl, but like a southern, you know, religious good girl. Where like in my, growing up, being nice was just the best thing you could be. Like nice and sweet, and not to say, not to speak, not to offend, and not to ruffle feathers. So I, by nature, am not a rabble rouser by any means. I am like quiet, like very, you know, like don't, you know, even like don't. I don't think I've been on Twitter in like five years. Like I was like, no, this is not for my temperament. Don't need this. They, in my call, life. It, they call it X now. <laughs> right. Yeah, I hear. That's what I hear. But I, I left well before that. I was just like, someone tweeted something not mean it nice at me. And I was like, I don't need this in my life. I can just never open that app again. And it's gone. It was like a revelation. So I, I am not like a fighter by, by personality. And so when it's interesting to write, you know, to be a writer though, because it does require you sometimes to say my, you know, in some ways my first, my first novel, um, the ladies auxiliary is about the Orthodox Jewish community in Memphis where I grew up. And it was the first thing I'd ever written. And it, you know, I sold it, which was like a, a thrill and a complete shock. And, you know, as I was writing, I would read parts to my mom and she was like, Oh, I love it. And then she'd be like, Oh, you're not really going to do this. Are you this anxiety about could you say, I mean, it was sort of a humorous novel, but it was pointed in a certain way about like the, it's really about the tension between individuality and community and conformity and mm-hmm. about what happens when a woman who is very different from the other members of this community moves in and how she sort of ruffles a lot of feathers. And, and I was terrified because I was not, did not envision myself as someone who was a feather ruffler, but I also wanted to say that feeling of honesty, wanting to be able to speak. And when the book came out, I mean, there was people who loved the book, the people who hated the book. There was lots of talk. I mean, I think I will always be known in Memphis as the one who wrote that book is how it's referred to as. And and so you take it, there's a personal hit you take on being willing to put something out there. But I don't know what the alternative is. I don't know that you can can write without being willing to say sometimes and put things out there. But I do. I mean, in some ways it makes me more private. It makes me quieter and a little more closed off that there's a certain, certainly with writing memoir, there's a strangeness that happens where I find myself being more closed in a certain sense, uh, even just, just personally, like, you know, one-to-one people. But I think, you know, I think some of you know that question you asked for those who are not, you know, like we know all know fighters, people who love the internet fight, who can't wait for like a little, you know, 
back and forth who who thrive on that i'm like oh no no mean words like i like we post a picture of my dog on facebook like that'll be you know that's the extent kind of thing and i think it's choosing when you're willing to speak and what feels important and how you choose to do it and you know deciding you know i'm very measured when i write something and i think about it and it's okay this i'm ready for this to go out in the world i don't i don't shoot from the hip i don't you know like send stuff out there without thinking about it carefully. But, you know, I feel like I have, once I decide this is really what I think and this needs to be said, then I do. And then I never read the comments. I don't want to know. I don't want to know like the, because there's so much of the back and forth online. Mm-hmm. You know, if you publish an essay, it's not thoughtful conversation. I'm always happy to respond to thoughtful conversation and to nuance, but just like, meanness that's put out on the internet i don't i feel like i'm not interested in that kind of conversation really is it a good sign if you've got haters knocking at your door because you're questioning a belief system you're you're pushing the envelope a little bit do you feel like that's still kind of a good sign maybe i mean there's always you know if you write about hot button topics you know religion divorce those are things that get people going in different ways um you know, one of the things I learned from my first book is, you know, it was fascinating. I'd written this was this novel, it was 300 pages. It was about these women, in, fictionalized women in the community. And the same people hate, some people hated the main character and some people loved her. And it was the same character. And people were like, she's just like me. I totally see myself in her. And other people were like, I could just kill that lady, that character of yours. And ultimately they were reading the same words. And I think we all bring to our, we bring ourselves to what we read. And one of the things, you know, I learned it very early on as a writer that what outrages us or what infuriates us, what we love, what, what challenge threatens us says so much about ourselves as much as it does about the thing that we're reading. And so, I mean, it's interesting to think about what are the things that infuriate me that I read? What are the things that I feel like, oh, this speaks to me? It's it's telling me something as much about me as it is about the author of it. And, you know, sure, there's, you know, I feel like there are people who are not going to like my work, who are not going to agree with me, who don't want me to write about certain topics. And I under- I understand it. It's for people who value something, who feel like this is what my belief system is and you're writing an essay in the New York Times saying that I don't believe in this. Like, of course, it doesn't feel comfortable. And we all encounter this all the time, right? People who, who see the world differently from us. And I feel like what I would say is, yeah, we see this differently. Yes, you disagree with this. Um, this is my experience. And, you know, I think one of the questions I really wanted to ask in the memoir also was, how do we live with people we love or people we're connected to or people in our families that we don't love who believe differently than us? Because it's very rare that we're only going to be surrounded by people who believe the exact same thing. And what happens in our families and our workplaces and our communities and whatever groups we're part of where we encounter a differing belief system? What do we do about it? And to shut down and to say there's no space for you know for who you are doesn't doesn't accomplish anything. I certainly think about with families where you know you hear stories of kids who are different being shunned or kids who are not religious or kids who are more religious than a family. And it can go in any combination. And I you know I think about it as a mother, how do I make space for my children to be who they are, not who I want them to be? And how do I make space for friends to have different beliefs? And it's hard because when the things we value are threatened, it's, it's hard. It's hard to make space for them. I don't want to, I'm not someone who thinks it's easy. Just everyone just get along. It's, it's really hard to do it, but I think it's also very necessary. 
Yeah, it's it's not some easy utopian thing. This yeah. is something we have to work on on a daily right. daily basis. And, right. and a lot of people might be upset with your writing or anyone's writing or their business or their personality online mm-hmm. in in one way or another. But one thing that we haven't focused that much on that mm-hmm. I think is important is the amount of people you're actually helping. Right. What are some examples of people that have really kind mm-hmm. of transformed or changed their own personal life due to the yeah. writing you've you've put out here? I think one of my favorite moments in having the book of separation come out was it was probably been out for a month and I woke up to an email from someone who runs a podcast called Mormon Stories and mm-hmm. he asked me if I would be on his podcast. And I first thought, oh my gosh, he must have the wrong book. Like I am not, you know, he runs a podcast for people who've left Mormonism or have questioned Mormonism in one way or another. And I wrote back, I was like, oh, well, you know, trying to be like polite, but I, I was very surprised by the invitation. And then he wrote back saying that he had read the book of separation and felt like it spoke so fully to his, um, his world and to his community. And so I ended up going on the podcast. Um, I did not know it was like being live streamed on Facebook at the same time. I'm oh. highly low tech. So I was like, Oh, look, you know, who knew this is even a thing you could do. And, um, and there were just people writing in just, you know, from who were struggling or, or had left Mormonism. And, so many of the comments were, this is exactly my story. This is the same thing. This is exactly the same. And it's so fascinating because, of course, Orthodox Judaism is not exactly the same as Mormonism, but yet, and yet, even despite those differences, there was such a sense of commonality of experience, the same sense, I think, of grappling and the same feeling of the pain that comes from leaving a community that has shaped you. That's not just something you kind of do every once in a while, but really defines your core identity. And it was really, I think, for me, the part of the book of separation coming out that was the most gratifying, this feeling that um, that you could connect across these lines. I ended up doing an event in Salt Lake City for this podcast. They did a live podcast. And and there were a few hundred people there. And I looked out and I just felt like, oh, I have finally found my people. Like these people in this room are mine. Like this, the people who understood the rupture and didn't want to leave, didn't want to have to rupture the family in the sense of connection, but but also wanted to assert their own ability to choose their beliefs for themselves and to live in accordance with them. I don't even know what to say. It's so powerful. <laughs> it, it, it goes back to religion. I mean, I, I was raised very reformed Judaism and I never was, I don't know, I wasn't a good student. Um, mm-hmm. But the one thing I loved most was the community, right. was being around like-minded people, was being part of a tribe. Um, and there's so much value in that when you can bring people together that are making a difference together. It, it, that's That's almost like the most important part, right? Right. I think for me, one of the loss, one of the real losses was losing that tight knit sense of community. I mean, community can go in all directions. Sometimes it can be too tight or it can be stifling, but it also, there was something I think really important about that feeling of belonging or that feeling of connection. And I think one of the things that I've had to do in the you know ensuing years since leaving is recreate a feeling of community. And there's so many ways you can have community. Community can be created across different lines over different interests, but it's harder to do it. For me, that community came ready-made because I was born into it and grew up in it. But I do feel very much that sense that the importance of, of finding it in other places too, of realizing you could create, I read it, I think it was in the New York Times a few weeks ago about running clubs that create community. And I was mm. like, right, you can find it in so many places, but really the importance of, of 
choosing something that you're interested in, having that feeling of connection to other people. I mean, certainly post-pandemic, I think we all have a renewed sense of what it feels like to be cut off, how easy it is to to stay cut off in some sense, to just stay in our little bubbles and not, you know, leaving the house now feels like an option sometimes because I think I've learned that you could just stay home all the time, but realizing, no, it's how important it is to forge those those feelings of connection, even if they're small, even if they're in the coffee shop, I sometimes write in just the people I say hi to, but how important I think those things are just to our daily well-being and day-to-day life. I'm going to oversimplify, but but simply put, the community you're a part of doesn't have to be assigned to you. That's something you can choose for yourself based on, again, right. who you are and who you jive with, really. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So in a second, we're going to hard pivot to the rapid fire round. But I wanted to ask you, because we talked prior, and by the time this comes out, you would have just ran a marathon. It sounds like half marathon. Okay. Half marathon. So. <laughs> yes. I, I, it's funny. So I always feel like I, one of the things I, you know, I said, I am not someone who, I am not someone who runs is what I would have said about myself. But a few years ago, I, I started running. And, it, and again, that, that, that voice gets whittled away that I am not someone who runs. I'm like, and yet here I am. I have run one mile. And here I am. I have run two and three and four. And, I love running many days. I hate running, but I feel like it teaches me that sense of endurance, that feeling of I stay, you know, I feel like I don't think about speed, but I think about distance. And I think that works. In some ways I feel like distance is like the novel writing of the running world. Like it's the, the long haul of being willing to stay and stay and stay and to know that the first mile might feel bad. I always feel like it's going to get better. It's going to also get worse but it's going to get better. You know, the both that the way the mile mile one feels is not the way mile 10 feels. And so I, I did two half marathons last year and then wow. kind of trailed off and I'm ramping back up to run the Boston half marathon um, in a few weeks, but it's very much in my mind, that feeling of how much, how much of it is a mental game, how much of it is my own mindset, my own feeling that like I can psych myself out, which I'm so good at. Like, you can't do this. You can't do this. Or, or psych myself up and be like, of course you can. You've done it twice before. You look at you go. And, and I feel like it, it, there's almost like a, there's a mental training that goes, that is part of the running as much as a physical training. That every time I, I'm mostly a treadmill runner, every time I get back on the treadmill, there's always a voice that says, no, you can't. And, and the, so much of the learning is to, to, to ignore that voice, to be like, you know, to put it aside and to say like, yes, I, I have a negative inner voice, but I'm going to start writing anyway. And then, then, you know, eventually that, that voice is, it doesn't, doesn't matter what that voice says because I'm, I'm running. I love that. I love this as a metaphor for so many things in life, specifically writing, since that's one big thing we're talking about today. It's like, there's only going to be one top selling book at a single time. There's only going to be one. I, they, it's hard to be the best, but the purpose isn't to be the quickest. The purpose is the actual journey and the discipline to get through it and what you learn about yourself within the process. So even if Ben, who hasn't published a book, starts writing today and isn't a New York Times bestseller, it's still worth it, right? Right. I mean, that kind of thinking is is so detrimental, right? That it has to be all or nothing. Or when I told my seven-year-old nephew that I was going to run the Boston Half Marathon, he said, do you think you're going to win? <laughs> I, was like, oh, no. I was like, no, 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 no. Probably not. And he was like, so why would you do it then? 
And I was like, kind of explained to him, they're going to, I'm like, if I come in like, you know, 4,000, that sounds great. To his ears, 4,000 sounded like horrifying, you know, as a number. But I think, you know, when we, that, that, you know, it's so easy to get into like, if it's not the best, if it doesn't have this, I'm not as good as this person. And I, I think one of the things running teaches you is, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I got, I feel like this is for writing and running is run your own race to run the race I'm on. I, I Before the first time I ran the half marathon, I wrote on my hand, the mile you're on. And I was like, I am, they are faster than me. They are younger than me. They are many more, the, all the people, you know, are so many more things, but I am just going to run my race. And this is the race I decide. These are, I'm going to run this, this pace and I'm going to run it the whole time. And it doesn't matter who's behind me and who's ahead of me, but just that I, and I think it's so true with the writing. It's so easy to go down the envy rabbit hole of, well, that book got this. And why did her book get that? And how much did she get? And how many books did she sell? And I didn't get that review. It is just poison. It is, it does nothing. And I feel like when I can, the same, the same advice really that I, I tell myself in running a race, run my own race. I feel like all I can focus on is my book, the book I'm right, the writing of it, the writing of it, being inside of it. And, you know, the New York Times bestseller list, that is like winning the half, the marathon, the half marathon. That's, you know, that is not what it's about, you know, in terms of the writing. It's, you know, of course, it's lovely. Who would not want that? But that, that can't be the only, the only, you can't run the half marathon thinking, for most of us, you cannot run the half marathon thinking you're going to win it. It's not even like a question. Yes. <laughs> complete it. I'm, ready, I'm happy to complete it, to not die afterwards. That's the bar I'm setting here. You could do your best to attract winning it, but there's going to be 50,000 or 5,000 other people with that same mentality and possibly they're going to beat you. So you got to prepare for that. But I'm going to focus on, can I do it faster than last year? Can Mm. I pick up my pace? Can I, you know, can can I um, improve from last year? Can I run it a little faster? Can I run it with a little less um, trepidation? And so much of it for me is the mental game where, can I not tell myself for the week leading up to this, you're going to be bad at this? Can I say like, no, I've got this. Like, I've got this. And then and to, to cultivate that. And that's a victory also. You've got this. Another future focus question. We're recording this end of 2023. This will come out around 2024. Um, is it even announced yet? You're writing a new novel, right? It, it, have you talked about that at all yet? Um, I haven't officially talked about it yet, but I did sell... Um, a novel um, a few weeks ago. I've been working on it for about four years. And um, there's a long, you know, it's talking about the long slog and the long, slow process, but it is going to be published by Avid Reader, which is part of Simon & Schuster in 2025. Amazing. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's been a long, you know, a lot of rounds and rounds of revision and undoing the book and redoing the book and rethinking and comments and crying a little bit along the way and like having to re redo beginnings and endings, but it is thrilling to be at this stage with it. And there's, there's still a little more of work on it ahead of me. I'll do another round of edits with my editor, mm-hmm. but it does feel, it feels great to be at this stage of it. I'm going to be looking forward to 2025. In the meantime, I already read the book of separation. You actually read it to me because I had the audio book and the oh, did you? Book. Okay. Um, I'll dive deeper into your works. I recommend the listener do that as well. And then when 2025 comes along, you got something new to put our hands on. Thank That's you. Exciting. I wish I could tell you what it was called. I don't know yet. The title is under discussions, but That's it, will, part of the it, will have, it will have a title. 
Well, and, and I said it, a mentor taught me this forever ago, but writing is rewriting and finding the perfect title and crafting the perfect, it, you can't get it right the first time a lot of the time, right. can you? Right. So much of writing is revision. I mean, so much of it is, you know, it's easy to get so attached to like something you write and think, oh, this is the way it is. And then I really believe in getting feedback. I have a writer's group who's read my book many times, a literary agent who, who has given me many, many comments and will say like, you know, this is great, but, and, and there's always that infl- inclination not to listen to, like, no, 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 I don't want any comments, but I know that is the, I think that the creative process works that way where I take it this far and then someone gives me comments and that's what enables me to take it a little further. And mm. so much of the discipline is, of writing is being willing to undo something that you've worked so hard to, to make and to be willing to say, okay, the beginning, you're saying the beginning isn't compelling enough. Okay, I'm going to take these sentences that I worked so hard on and I'm going to, I'm going to delete them or I'm going to put them in their own little file or I'm going to undo them or I'm going to rethink. And being, and I think it's being flexible in your thinking, being willing to look at your own work and not be fixed and say, this is how it has to be, but be willing to, to hear feedback and to, to assimilate it in. And, and still, of course, to hold on to your own vision of something, but to take trusted readers' comments seriously, to recognize that I, at some point, three years into a book, I'm not seeing it cl- as clearly as I might be able to, and, and to use mm. people's comments to push myself to take it to the next level. I love that. This 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 tip on flexibility is so important. And as a marketer by trade, I say all the time, survey and serve. And the survey is that, listening to your readers, right. listening to your listeners, listening to your clients, and and serve them what they want. It's not about right. us. It's about the impact we get to create. And if people can't uh, align with your message, they're not going to read it. And then you don't get to help them, which is a big bummer. Right. Or to realize that just because I did it this way the first time doesn't mean it's the only way. And there's, oh. I always have that initial resistance. Like, no, if I take apart the opening, the whole book will fall apart. And then you realize uh. it doesn't fall apart. I can undo something. And and it takes, there's always the moment. I feel like there's like the deep breath moment of, okay, here we go again. I make a new file, like going back in and I undo things. And I, I delete, or I make, you know, changes and I make a mess again. And it's living with the, un, the unfinished product again. But I do think that is how you get closer and closer to a final version is that, that willingness to undo. It's, it's not fun, but it's, I, 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 it's one of the things I probably believe in most about creativity that, that you're always doing and undoing. You're always doing and undoing. I like that. We're we're at our regularly scheduled program finish, but do you have time to squeeze in a rapid fire sure. round? Just ask oh, a yeah, bunch sure. of random questions. Oh, sure. One question, I, one question I've been loving lately is, um, let's say they were to make a documentary on your life. Who plays you? Oh, that's such a good question. My children have asked me, they're like, can we be, if your book memoir ever became, you know, a movie, could we be um, in the book? I was like, well, you guys are like 10 years older than the kids in the book because 10 years have gone by. So I don't know. People always tell me I look like Mini Driver. So I don't know. Mini Driver. You could play yourself. I can play myself. Right. That's that's always an option. Right. Exactly. Um. Five, three to five people or less. It's just kind of brainstorm, live or dead. You get to sit down at a dinner table. Let's 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 make it more um, 
let's make it more niche and say they're all writers. So you get to sit down with a handful of writers and just pick their brain, learn from them, share stories. Who would you want to have at that dinner table with you? Well, well, I love Virginia Woolf, so I'll have to go with her. I think she'll be interesting. I'll take Jane Austen because, you know, why not? If one is given the option of taking Jane Austen. Just to spice it up, I would not mind. Maybe I'll take Philip Roth, great Jewish American writer, just to spice up the dinner party a little bit and make it a little more. (laughs) (laughs) But just also just to see the three of them in conversation would, off the top of my head, I'll take those. I'm going to go on a rabbit hole with these three offers. We'll put their links in the show notes so people okay. can go on a rabbit hole with us. Um, it's a rabbit hole. It's a crazy pairing and a dinner party. It probably won't work out that well, but you know, <laughs> literally off the top of my head. That would be a story to tell for sure. Right. Exactly. We'll do one final closing question. Any, well, we touched on two big goals. So I was going to ask any big goals right now. You're about to run a marathon. You're writing your new novel. I guess the bigger question is like, how can we support you as you continue to run these marathons, even metaphorically, you know, achieve greatness? Well, how can we support you? Right. I think so. You know, I, I, as this other book has finished or um, is mostly finished, I have started writing a new novel. Um, and so I, have that feeling of like setting out again. It feels like setting off into the the murky dark of of not sure what it's going to be about. I'm interested in some family Wait, so history. One, so one moment, you you finished a novel. It's not out for another year, but you're already writing a new one. Well, I guess because I finished. It's fascinating to me, right? Well, there's lag time. I finished the book in the summer. Yes. Um, it was with my agent and with my editor. So there's this weird last time, you know, I took a few weeks. At first, I was like, oh, I'm just going to watch TV. I'm going to do nothing. But that lasted for like a day. I, I, I love writing. I love being involved in a project. And so I've always wanted to write um, a novel based on some of my family history. I'm a sixth generation Memphian. And so I wanted to write some of my Southern Jewish family history. So I've started researching that. So I'm just sort of in that research phase. But if you want to come up with a title for me, I'm game. I'm taking suggestions for the, the book that's coming out next year. The, Open ideas. The, the girl that wrote that novel again. Right. Something like that. Right. Well, you're, you're, you're really trying to upset Memphis a little bit. <laughs> right. I know. It's funny. I had not been about Memphis in a long time. And I feel, I mean, it feels like home still. It feels like mm. this. I guess I'm really interested in the question of what does it mean to be, um, for my family to have lived there for six generations in this small Southern Jewish community and right. not to live there anymore. So I'm interested in questions of home. It's, I guess, has something to do with immigration or how people made this place their home, how my family came from other countries and, and really became became Southerners in, in some sense. But it's the very early stages of like, it's the mess on the page stage right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear more. I think it's going to be fascinating, interesting, possibly uplifting. And um, yeah, when you come from like a small little community, Right. Six generations. I'm fascinated. I don't even know what to say. I'm going to have to read it. Thank you. I have to write it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what did we miss? I know we missed a million things, but a- anything else you want to leave with the audience, the listener? Um, I'm thinking what? Nothing in particular. Is there anything else that we 
I think we covered a lot of ground. I think it, it, it's I I recommend people read the book of separation. I can't wholeheartedly recommend the other novels because I haven't read them yet. But if it's anything like the book of separation, you're an incredible writer. I appreciate you, you coming on the show. Um, and maybe we do it again in a in a year or so. Thank you. Yeah, the publication date is 2025, which feels like forever from now, but but that is when it will be. We'll rock and roll. I appreciate you coming on, and we'll do it again. Thank you. Thanks, Tova. Thank you so much. Oh, hey, you're still here. Thanks for listening. If you need to take off, that's quite all right. I do have something brand new and exclusive to share. If you believe more hands-on training, peer accountability, and direct access to some of our guests from this very show would be a helpful addition to the podcast, do me a favor and head over to growgettersonly.com. That's grow, G-R-O-W, getters, G-E-T-T-E-R-S, only. Dot com, growgettersonly.com. Here you can unlock instant access to exclusive high-level mentors, training, networking, accountability, and hot seat coaching alongside fellow growth-obsessed entrepreneurs and business professionals just like yourself. All for guess what? One dollar. That's right, one dollar for 30 days. What's a grow getter? In short, a growth focused individual, especially in the business realm, who combines the relentless energy of a go getter with a constant pursuit of self improvement and collaboration. Is that you? Head to growgettersonly.com for some community support. This is not for you if you're looking for a quick fix rather than long term growth. Collaboration and learning from others just doesn't seem to appeal to you. You're not ready to be part of a community that relentlessly pushes boundaries. Complacency is your comfort zone. It's not for you. If it is for you, and if you didn't turn this off yet, I do presume you're a grow-getter. And I'd love to invite you to join my new collective, Grow-Getters Only. Basically, cost to check it out, $1 for a month. It's basically free. Everything is over at growgettersonly.com. Just like I said, growgettersonly.com. Oh, yeah. And one last thing. We do put on free events as well if you can't afford the dollar. <laughs> Jokes aside, I'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you.